What's up, everybody? How's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Before we get into this awesome episode with my very good friend, Deanna Surcott, who is the executive director of the Greater Birmingham Arts Education Club. Uh, seriously, this interview is its so great. Uh, Deanna was on a performance track, uh, just like many of us, and she got into arts administration and the stuff she's doing in the arts with a life in the arts, serving the arts, uh, but not necessarily in the traditional career paths that we normally think about. It's it's amazing. And some of her insights towards the end of the episode about some of the negative influences in her life, I just think are really, really um, good insights, some that we probably all can identify with. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. Again, before that, though, I want to take a second and thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest level of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. If you've ever wanted to consult with someone about your playing equipment, what other options there might be, and how to know what's just right for you, look no further than Houghton Horns. They offer free in-person virtual equipment consultations with their team of professional musicians, which means whether you live in Keller, Texas, where they're located, or you live outside the United States, Houghton Horns is able to serve you. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. So whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today I'm here with a very, very good friend of mine, Deanna Surcott. She is the executive director of the Greater Birmingham Arts Education Collab. Uh, she'll talk a little bit more about what that is and what it looks like and um, everything about it. Uh, but it's interesting to me to have known her for a while. Uh, we came into contact when her husband, Peter, won a job with the orchestra in Alabama playing cello. And she shortly after that became um, involved in our management side of things, the education um, stuff that we were doing. And I'll let her talk more about that. But we became friends and just to see how her career has progressed uh, in the arts, but sort of separate from a performing thing, I thought would be a very, very uh, useful and informative and inspiring, ultimately, story for all of us to hear because it's uh, a path that we don't always assume and think about, at least me did not always think that this would be a possibility, but one of the things I hope to get into later is just all the different things that uh, we would learn as music majors that might actually serve us very well in other job uh, opportunities or other job capacities that we may not necessarily think has transferable um, applications. So first of all, Deanna, thank you so much for giving me some of your time and the rest of our audience, some of your wisdom. Thank you so much. Ryan, thanks so much for having me. I know we've been talking about doing this for a while now, and I'm glad we finally had the chance to make it happen. Yeah, this was a... Uh... We were planning, like, I think literally the week that the pandemic, like, happened or everything shut down, that's when we were supposed to do this. So we're finally coming back. 
Uh, as always with these interviews, I think the nicest place to start is just kind of your introduction into music, uh, however far back that goes for you, just to get us a little grounded in that side of you so we can uh, go from there and kind of catch up to where you are now. So I grew up in a family of arts lovers. I remember um, growing up, maybe three years old, my mom would play classical music while we were you know, maybe doing some chores or hanging around the house. Um, I have a number of artisans and artists in my family. So I think it was really just kind of in my DNA um, to be very interested in the arts. Um, I did dance growing up. I did music. I started doing piano and clarinet in elementary school. And um, kind of throughout middle school and high school, I realized I really liked doing this and uh, started going to some music festivals and ultimately went to um, University of Michigan for my undergraduate degree in clarinet performance um, and then went on to Cleveland State University for my master's. And while I was in Cleveland, um, I just absolutely love my time there. Um, one of the amazing things about being in a community like that is they had, they have so many regional orchestras. Um, so I think it was maybe one of my first professional auditions that I took. I got a couple of sub positions in some of those orchestras and got to play full time and loved it. Um, another really great thing about being in Cleveland was uh, the time I was there um, they held a Cleveland State University TEDx conference. And I was asked to play, um, actually premiere a piece written by one of my uh, theory professors uh, for solo clarinet and, and choreography, actually. And um, I absolutely loved doing that event. And I think that was really one of the key moments where I got to experience multiple sectors coming together to really like talk about the future and talk about how the arts can revitalize a community. Um, Cause in an in a event like that, you have the arts, you have tech, you have medicine, um, you've got higher ed. And I just absolutely love being in that environment. Um, so that kind of solidified my interest in you know, doing something a little broader than just performing. Um, so I was also very fortunate to study with someone at the time, my clarinet teacher, um, Dr. Ellen Brakefield Glick, um, but she had had some experience in arts admin. And I remember in a lesson once, I don't remember exactly how it came up, but I said, I'm kind of interested in this. And she was just like, oh, you totally should try it out. Um, and I remember she was extremely generous with me and we spent actually some of my lesson time kind of, um, looking at my resume, like, you know, redoing it, reformatting it, um, thinking about things in an administrative context. And, um, she really encouraged me to look for administrative, like internship opportunities. Um, so after grad school, I moved to Houston, Texas. Um, my husband, Peter, was uh, still working on his master's degree there. And um, I got- That would an, be at Rice, right? Yes, at Rice. Yeah, at Rice University, right. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I got an internship at Young Audiences of Houston. I was really excited about it. I think like the next week he won the job here in the Alabama Symphony. So I didn't actually get to do that internship. Um, we moved here and um, I was still really interested in in admin. I didn't know what it was going to look like for me. Um, and I got connected with the symphony. Um, I actually reached out to Kathleen, uh, your wife, who mm. principal clarinet of the Alabama Symphony. And um, she said, you know, while I'm here, I should you know, sub with the orchestra for a couple of services, um, that fall. And, um, I think that's my, that was my first connection with the Alabama symphony. Um, but I also reached out to, um, the symphony staff and I said, I just want to help. If you have anything I can do, I'd be glad to help. And, um, they gave me an internship in the education department. Um, and that was really great experience. And eventually an opening full-time position opening came available for um, education manager at the Alabama Symphony. Um, so I got to move into that and do the work full-time. And um, shortly thereafter uh, became the director of education at the symphony, did that for a few years. And um, during that time, uh, we kind of had the side project going on um, in Birmingham. Uh, a group of folks and individuals kind of in similar positions like directors of education, but at other arts organizations in the community, uh, we started coming together and just kind of getting to know each other and really forming a community around you know, arts organizations that do supports for schools, do supports for arts education. And we realized we had a lot of overlapping challenges and um, there were a lot of opportunities to collaborate. So uh, that initial conversation, we didn't know exactly what was going to come out of that. But what did come out of that is we just kept getting together regularly. And then, um, you know, thanks to some generous funding um, from the State Arts Council, uh, that project became fully funded and I had the opportunity to move into that full time. So that is now the Greater Birmingham Arts Education Collaborative, which I lovingly refer to as the Arts Collab. <laughs> it's so some of this obviously I remember quite well, but I didn't know about trying to create a community, reaching out. I didn't know how that was kind of like the the genesis of that idea. I think it's super cool that um, you would even not necessarily be, uh, this is the work that I'm doing, this is it. This is like the thing I'm passionate about or the thing that I'm being paid for. But even then, looking for other opportunities. Was that your, who, where was the sort of, uh, the genesis or the catalyst? Like where, where did it start? Did someone reach out to somebody first or did you all meet each other at some point and so realize it was like a good vibe? Like how did that come about? Yeah, um, the groundwork was really laid by a lot of people. Um, there's this initiative in Alabama, it's a statewide initiative um, called the Artistic Literacy Consortium. And um, what they, this group had done ha is kind of gone around the state, done a study of where, what kind of access do we have to arts education here in Alabama? And they found that the majority of students have minimal or no access to the arts. And they also found that the schools that do have access, um, the students tend to be happier coming to school. They, they tend to do better in school. So this group developed a plan 
kind of to increase access across the state. Um, and they were rolling out this plan about when I started at the orchestra. And um, I knew all these folks in these state organizations. Um, I mean, in the arts in Alabama, I think everybody knows the State Arts Council. So I remember being at the conference where they kind of rolled out the plan and, and announced the plan. And um, I just remember like sitting in my chair and being like, I would really want to be a part of this. Um, so I kind of reached out and just started the conversation and um, serendipitously, um, uh, my my board who my board chair now Diane Litzy um, at the time uh, she was also reaching out and uh, the the person we were talking to at the State Arts Council said you know let's just all get together so it was like pretty organic I would say um, but Diane Diane really did a lot of work to get that initial conversation going and she's been working here in Birmingham um, in the arts. Uh, for a while and she knew everybody and um, kind of had a handle on, it's kind of time to kind of time to do this. Yeah. I'm, I think I know the answer to this question I'm about to ask, but you saying I kind of reached out, started the conversation. Um, the length of time I've known you, you don't seem to be afraid to be that person to sort of make connections and try to start communications. And in my mind, we as orchestral musicians can get into this position where it's like all that matters is can I play my instrument and win a job? But I would say in the rest of the world, like your ability to communicate with people and the connections you make and what kind of impression you leave on people probably means far more to your sustainability as an organization or a group than just the individual talent that somebody may have. And I'm kind of curious if you have just thoughts on have you always been that way? Have you learned to develop that skill through the through necessity of various jobs that you've done? Or where did this willingness to start conversations and sort of be the go-getter of those situations? Of course, you weren't doing it alone, but you can only control what you can control. I'm just curious where this might have come from. So I think for me, um, growing up, uh, my, my dad actually... Um, huge proponent of the seven habits of highly effective people. And um, I remember reading it like a couple times and um, we would talk about it a lot. And I think for a lot of people, they can, you know, if you're, your parent is really interested in something, it's kind of like, oh, why are you, why are you talking about this again? But for me, for some reason, when he'd talk about Stephen Covey, I'd be like very interested. Um, and the first habit is be proactive. Um, and I think kind of, it goes back to just having, having my dad as an influence and having him as a role model in my life. Um, I also remember when I was a teenager, he got me, um, seven habits of highly effective teenagers, uh, which is written by Covey's son. And I don't remember all of those habits, but the one that stuck out to me was, um, as a teenager, they were recommending get outside of your comfort zone. Um, and I remember like kind of being in middle school, being in high school and just like trying to be aware of like, am I in my comfort zone? Am I out of my comfort zone? And like, I think from kind of an early age, um, I just got, I don't know. I just approached everything with that kind of framework. Um, but I also think when you find something that is just like a good fit for you, 
it's just something so internal that makes you just want to go out there and do what needs to be done to get it done. Um, and I think that's, that's key too. Um, and I think that, you know, might've just been the case. It was the right, the right time. Yeah. That's an interesting perspective. I, I love that book as well. Uh, one of the most, I think the habit that has served me, not just as a podcaster, this will be pretty obvious, but just as a a person who is in now in positions where sometimes people are asking me questions of like, what do you think? Or how could this be helpful or whatever? The one that seek to understand then to be understood has served me incredibly well. And actually being able to get at the root of what somebody might be struggling with rather than, I feel like I used to struggle with, somebody would say a few words and then I would immediately make up my mind about what was wrong and then just talk at them rather than really try to understand the complexities of what they're probably dealing with. Yeah, that book was really interesting to read. I feel like the other one, Sharpen the Saw, has been one that's become more real to me as well. I feel like this is an interesting conversation because many people have probably read this book. So what other takeaways from this book in general? Like what other um, ones do you feel, habits do you feel that you've either incorporated in your personal life or obviously the public victories that you feel have been um, helped you be successful? I think my favorite projects that I've been a, been a part of have been group projects. Um, I really resonate with Think Win Win. Um, I think for me, um, I wouldn't characterize myself as a terribly competitive person. I I have a tendency to thrive in more collaborative environments, um, and. I have just loved the projects where um, you're bringing several partners together and you all kind of have the shared vision of what you want to do and everybody can take ownership and everybody benefits. Um, those have been by far my favorite par uh, projects to be a part of. You don't have to necessarily go into super detail, but this is something for me as someone who has like high vision of things, you know, I, I have like a hyper functioning way of really seeing things, being able to come together with somebody else and managing how much I'm willing to sac like not sacrifice, but sort of compromise because somebody else's vision fits this. Like, what are your experiences in um, how easy is this to do? Or does it how much time does it take to really work through these types of things? Or have you seen that sometimes one person leads the way eventually and then other people sort of support that? Like, how does this kind of work in your experience? Um, I think the the best ones have been the ones that are not forced. They kind of happen at the at the right time when things are ready. Um there, yeah, there, I mean, that's a really good point. There can be turf issues, um, but I would say that that doesn't happen all the time. There are instances where everything goes great and everybody works really well together. Um, I think a really good example of a project where we had multiple partners coming together was actually when we started the sensory friendly concerts at the Alabama Symphony. Um, because, you know, like the symphony does, you know, the symphony's expertise is playing amazing music at a very high level. Um, and what we had the opportunity to do is to take that experience and think about how could we make that accessible for children and adults on the autism spectrum? 
And that's where um, a local organization called Culture City really had the expertise. Um, so we had this shared vision of uh, let's create a symphony experience that's accessible for um, children and adults with um, learning differences, with, for, for children and adults on the autism spectrum. And that was the shared goal. And there was this understanding that the, the symphony does music really well. Culture City, they're the experts on making it accessible. So it was just kind of like everybody comes to the table sort of asking questions and asking for the expertise of the other organization and it can fit together really nicely. And I think that that was a really good example of that. Because this is something we deal with or we can deal with on stage too, right? Differences of understanding of how we interpret certain things. And when we have a conductor, maybe it makes it a little bit easier when sort of the buck stops here. But in things like chamber music groups where everybody will have possibly their own unique vision, I find it would it would be the same exact thing and how we would come to a particular decision. Um, so do you have... Um, I don't want to call it like a workflow, but I, maybe you know what I mean by saying that. Like, is there sort of a step, a way that you sort of walk through a process of how we collect a vision and then how we sift through and all those things? Is there like a process that you follow or is it completely organic and there's really no way to capture it? Like, what's your experience with that? Yeah, I think my experience so far has been really um, on the organic side of things, but it starts with someone reaching out and just asking like, hey, I've got this idea what do you think about this? Um, and the other person's either going to say, yeah, that sounds great. Like, let's get together and have a conversation. Or, you know, and it's totally fine for someone to say, I, you know, that kind of falls outside of the scope of what we do. So maybe let's revisit that or, you know, that probably won't work out this time. Um, so I, I do think, yeah, it depends on kind of the you know, where people are coming from when when that kind of opportunity arises. Um, and kind of back to your previous question, I've seen this done in a number of ways where um, you do have one person kind of spearheading things. Um, but I've also seen it done where um, just personalities work really well together. There's a lot of mutual respect and the work is shared pretty equally. Um, so I would say each one does look pretty different. Um, but the the workflow, again, comes back to someone just says, hey, I have this idea. What do you think? Sometimes that's one conversation. Sometimes that's one phone call. Um, I've been part of projects where, you know, it's like maybe that's like three or four meetings. Um, and then you kind of get to a point where you have everybody around the same table and, um, you know, someone's kind of said at this meeting, we're going to make these decisions. Okay, let's have a conversation. Let's talk about it. Let's decide as a group. And then everybody has their marching orders and you kind of just go out and start making it happen. Um, another thing that I like to do is actually schedule check-in meetings. Like once the project has started, okay, after two months, we're going to come back together. We're going to talk about what's going well, um, anything that might need to be adjusted at this point. Um, maybe there's like an, an end event that is going to need to be planned for and you just don't have all the details at the beginning, but you do kind of a few months in and you have to come back and kind of nail those down. Um, so I, I would say... 
you know, the process can look a lot of different ways and um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't assuming there would be sort of a step one, step two, yeah. <laughs> like do these kinds of things, but I always think it's just worth like thinking about, you know, like how would we, like you said, the win-win idea is like, how would we communicate so we both win? Like, yeah. what do we really want? What are we seeking? And I think sometimes we as people struggle to communicate what we want. Like, this is what I hope to achieve so that instead of arguing, we have to have it my way, we're rather coming at coming at it from, it's something I try to, like with my kids, I try to do. So if I'm saying to Patrick, I want you to do this thing and he's like not into it. I, I, I get this wrong a lot, but every once in a while I'll say something like, well, here's what I want. I would like the floor to be swept or whatever, right? And then I'm like, I guess you can choose however you want to do that thing, but like I would like the floor to be swept. And I feel like then it gets at the heart of, well, like now he hears what I want rather than what I'm telling him to do. And then I'm trusting him to execute in some fashion where he'll get it done. And I feel that that's a very simplistic way of talking about it, but I think it very well transfers to disagreements in terms of musical interpretation or disagreements over vision is just like, well, rather than having it our way, we could strip it down to, well, here's what we want. Here's what I hope gets across. How can we bring that together? Because there's most likely a solution when we just start talking about why we want what we want instead of just, it has to be my way. Totally. And I think... Um... I know, I've never set out to do a partnership just to do a partnership, like to say you do a, a group project or, you know, you worked on this together. You're kind of always starting with what's the end goal? Um, you know, whom else might be interested in being a part of this? Do You know, do we need other people to be a part of this? Like to make this happen, is there a level of expertise that we don't have and somebody else might and you know, we're going to reach out and ask, ask them to be a part of it. Um, I'm happy to provide another example too of something actually we're doing right now. If if you'd like, uh, just yeah, thinking absolutely. through it. Let's let's yeah. So um, we have a board member who is, um, and I love I love all of my board members, but um, T. Marie King is one of my personal heroes. Also, um, she is a Birmingham based. Um, activist, trainer, and speaker. Um, she is also on the leadership committee for the Jefferson County Memorial Project. And they do a lot of work around um, bringing awareness to racial terror that's happened here locally in our our city. Um, they do a lot of really incredible work. Um, in, um, and, and one thing that they wanted to do is build out an education component of their programs. Um, so she asked me, she she just asked me one day, she said, we really want to figure out a way um, to, to think about how parents might be able to talk to their children about lynching. Um, lynching is a pretty, um, can be a pretty tough subject to discuss with children. Um, and she thought a really great way to do that would be to bring in the arts. Um, so what we did is, and she had these ideas, she said, I kind of want to use the green book um, as subject matter. And then um, I happened to have a school partner that wanted some programming. I remember I went to the school to a parent teacher night and I wasn't sure what was going to come out of it. But I had this really amazing teacher come up to me and said, I, 
I really want to do some arts programming. Um, you know, and I teach social studies and we happen to do civil war reconstruction era. And I was just like, this is great. I have the, I've got the perfect fit. Um, so all of the pieces happen to come together. And I think, uh, you know, one thing that we did is, is we just were kind of looking for it, um, in a way like, um, we, we knew that we had this really great project we could do. Uh, we didn't put any kind of timeline on it. We didn't say this has to happen by X, Y, Z date. It was just kind of like, if we find a good school partner, let's, let's do it. Let's go forward with it. Um, and we did. And now we work with uh, about 166 graders um, at a middle school in town. Um, they get to work with local artists and um, do some spoken word around the green book and kind of some civil war reconstruction era content. So that's something that's going on actually right now as we speak. So. Yeah. Wow. I can imagine just being a part of a project that carries that kind of weight to it in general would just be like, I feel like to me, it would be intense all around, not even just like what this would be like to communicate this to a child, but just like trying to take care of the subject matter in, in general and, and to, to do it in the right way that it would make sure it's accurate so we know like what it is. We're not trying to like say, well, this is different than what it actually was so we can understand like what actually happened. And I can imagine that's very difficult to 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 just be involved with, I suppose. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, having everybody at the table who we do who we have currently, um, like the arts club, we we our thing is arts education. Um, the memorial project, they're the experts on the history and the, like specifically the history in Jefferson County, like in this area of, you know, where Birmingham is. Um, and then we, of course, have our school partners, teachers, you know, some of the administrators. So, you know, collectively, we were able to build out this program. Um, so it's, it's great to have like multiple sets of expertise when you're working on something like this. Yeah. If it's okay with you, I kind of want to back up just a little bit because I want to keep painting a fuller picture of kind of uh, what we're talking about here. Because I just think as we are just talking... It's just very clear that the arts can be anywhere and everywhere. And it like what you're describing, like this is a thing that has nothing to do with the arts that the arts are now supporting. And it, like from that perspective, if anybody believes in like what the arts can do, you can take it almost anywhere from that. Like, I mean, that's like a, a logical leap, I would say. And so I, I feel like we need to paint more of this picture, but I'd like to come back to that kind of idea at the very end and just to see like what your sort of your thoughts in general are because it would not from a, even from a place of like, we have more arts opportunities, right? But like careers, like jobs, you know, that are outside of teacher or performer. And so, but you're still in the arts, you're still like supporting that. So I kind of, I want to come back to that. Uh, but one thing I did want to talk about, this is, uh, I hope we get, uh, I'm really excited to see what you're going to say is I, I want to back up to your time in the Alabama Symphony Orchestra because this is for me like the most I was acquainted with the work you were doing when seeing especially when you became 
um, when you were in charge of the education stuff. And it was like all of a sudden we were going from we're doing some educational shows to like now we're doing more and more and more. And that seems to be like a major component of what we're doing almost comparatively speaking. And you were sort of spearheading a lot. Well, not sort of. Obviously, you had a team, but you were spearheading a lot of this. I'm curious for two things. We'll start with how did you do this? Like if you were to just reflect back on how you feel that you were able to successfully grow our presence uh, in arts education in Birmingham and obviously the surrounding areas as well. How do you feel like, what, what do you feel like contributed to your success in that endeavor? So for a little bit of context, um, when I started at the symphony, um, uh, yeah, there were a number of challenges um, that we were, were having. Um, one was that we weren't effectively engaging with the education community. And that resulted in, you know, sometimes we'd plan for education concerts and wouldn't have a big enough audience and we'd have to cancel them or um, not making ticket goals, um, things like that. Just in general, participation was kind of low. Um, I remember, I think my very first week um, in the position of education manager, there was a young people's concert. It was, um, it was in February. It was kind of cold. And I just remember like feeling like I was kind of drinking from a fire hose. Like we were doing, it was my first week and we already had a concert. Um, there was a lot going on. And I think for that particular concert, um, the, t the turnout was like pretty decent. Um, but something that happened was um, the concert didn't quite meet our audience's expectations. So again, first week on the job, you, you know, what ended up happening was a number of teachers reached out and they said, we have this concern, these concerns about, about, the program that we just saw. And um, I think it's easy to look at something like that and just feel like, oh, that's, that's, you know, that's a kind of a feel like a little bit like a failure. Um, and I remember um, like getting those calls, seeing those emails from the teachers. And it occurred to me that they've taken the time to reach out because they care about their students' experiences. And we care about the students' experiences at the symphony. So what I did is I said to them, hey, you're right. Um, how about you help us design next year's programs? Um, so I didn't know what they were gonna say. I didn't know if they were gonna say yes. Um, but they they did, and I I think that summer, like they came into the office, um, we just kind of like full day, like what did you, what do you like about these programs? Um, why do you bring your kids to these programs? Why have you brought them in the past? What have been some um, really valuable moments of these programs? Um, how can these help you and your goals in your classrooms? And they really just helped, they even helped like choose and like 
come up with some ideas for repertoire because it was stuff that they were already like teaching in their classroom. Um, and we just took all of those ideas. And uh, I, I think that that really made a huge difference. Um, we took all of those ideas, um, you know, those teachers, since they were a part of making what the program was that very next year, they they came back. I mean, we're kind of at the point where they were like, not sure if they were ever going to come again, but they all came back. Um, and working with them and collaborating with them made the programs richer. It, it made them better, honestly. And I just, we made that a practice kind of going forward from that point that any programs that we were doing, um, we were asking the teachers to be involved, um, in some case, asking the students for feedback, and then um, just making those adjustments where we were able to. Um, and yeah, it really, it really made a difference. It really made the programs um, that much better. And that was your idea to just say, <laughs> hey, you should come in and tell us like how we could do this better? Yeah. Um I I think one one thing that I learned from being musician uh from being a musician or having a a musical background is the power of listening. And um and I think listening it's a little different from hearing. Like especially if like you're you're really going to try to take your playing to the next level. Um, a lot of people do so much recording and listening back. And to really get the most out of that, you almost have to like take all of your bias out and just ask yourself, well, okay, what am I hearing? Just like, you might hear like a passage that's really hard. And then like, you're just thinking, okay, that's hard. But if I'm listening to it from that lens, I'm not going to hear, like, I'm rushing that a little bit. Or, like, that last note's a little flat when I get there, or it's too long, or it's not staccato enough. Um, so I think the practice of, like, like listening to a performance as unbiased as we can and just kind of hearing what's there was such an important um, element of, like, being a musician. And that really, like, translated very well. So it was really interesting because um, when you're in admin or, you know, and, and the product isn't necessarily like the music that you put out, like, you know, you're making a difference like for people and for their experiences. And so it was kind of like, how can we listen in an unbiased way to what our audience is telling us? Um, because that's at the end of the day who we're serving and they're, they're the ones that matter. Um, yeah. Yeah, we're gonna stay on this for a second because I have a lot of thoughts that I want your feedback on. The next thing that I thought as I was listening to you is you're just talking about feedback. Like you're saying like feedback is essential for growth, which is like, duh, right? But it seems so like genius, right? <laughs> but all you did was just like ask for feedback. And to me... There's an element of do with it, basically. This is where I'm headed. It's like I have there's a there's a project that I'm working on right now, sort of behind the scenes. And um I'm I learned as much as I possibly could learn. 
And then at a certain point, I just had to do. And, I, and then I had to see what was there. And then like you said, so at a certain point, like we can try to come up with all the best strategies and all the best solutions. But then what I found is at a certain point, you just have to create. You have to see what happens. You have to go for it. And sometimes that fear can be so great of I don't know enough or it's not going to be perfect is so great that we won't actually do the thing and then we can't get see what's actually there and then figure out where we have left to learn. And so what struck me about your story is at a certain point, you just had to take that risk and say, they could have all said, we don't care enough or we don't care at all to help you. But you found not only that we got better ideas, but you also then, like you said, uh, tangentially got, this is how much our community supports this idea. But you had to take that risk. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on like what I sort of just rambled about, but I'd be curious where it takes you. Yeah, I think about... Um a quote from, I don't know if you watched the show Parks and Rec. Oh, yeah. At one point, Leslie's like, you know, when the bases are loaded and, um, you know, everything's stacked against you, what do you do? You you swing the hardest. Um, And I think, you know, in a practical sense, like, you can also think about it from what's the cost of not acting? Because there is a cost there too. Um, But... Uh, I think it also just comes down to something we said earlier. It's like, if you're in the right, if you're in the right field and you're doing something that you're enjoying and you're passionate about, like that question almost doesn't come up. It's just like, this is what needs to be done. Let's go, let's go do it. Um, so. Okay. Totally agree. Sorry. I just was processing. I totally agree. I think a lot of people the perfectionism, even if they're in the right field, the perfectionism is such a loud voice that it can be pretty crippling. Uh, is when you were, you know, pursuing your performing degrees and possibly even when you're trying to create something that's going to make like, or po- not make or break your business, but you get the idea. Like it could generate a lot of good or it could completely flop. Does perfectionism enter the equation for you? And if it does, like, how do you sort of manage making sure that you're still going to create, even though you may be struggling with that? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, perfectionism, yes. Um, I I have had my and continue to have kind of my own journey with perfectionism. Um, it's definitely a work in progress for me. Um, something that I realized kind of early on as I got into admin just coming from, you know, trying to pursue a full-time um, career in music, um, that process can be very stressful. Um, there are some days where it's just like the stress can almost become overwhelming. Um, and there were things about other fields that looked enticing because they seemed to be from the outside less stressful. And what I learned really quickly is that um, kind of the external factors once they changed, they didn't really minimize the stress at all. Like when, when, when I started getting into admin, I realized really quickly, like to, um, kind of affect the amount of perfectionism and stress. It's really a lot of internal work, um, rather than kind of what's happening around you externally. Um, and I would say, like, perfectionism for me, it it never goes away. It's kind of always there. Um, but I've started 
recently because um, I've brought my own awareness to to perfectionism and trying to become aware and like kind of make progress on like, you know, can I let this go a little bit? Because sometimes it doesn't help. And um, I've been looking at some experiences that I've had where something didn't go perfectly. And and instead of sit like kind of beating myself up about it, um, started taking on a like... Um, how can I practice some imperfection right now? How can I see this as an opportunity to like allow this to be imperfect? Um, and just remember that like something can still be very effective, even if it's not, you know, exactly how you were hoping it would come out. Yeah, I totally agree. As I've been watching YouTube videos and and learning about people's creative process, one of the sayings I keep coming across is done is better than perfect. And, you know, it sounds so trite, but I totally understand it. You, It's so easy to be like, oh, I see this flaw. I got to redo the whole thing. It's not good enough. But I find what you just said there at the end made me think that one thing I'm really trying to wrap my head around is like, I don't get to assign the value of the thing that I created. The person receiving it is who decides and assigns value. And they're going to assign value on different like parameters that I am. I'm going to be, oh, what's is it the best I could have possibly have done? And that's a great thing to put on ourselves to continue learning how to grow closer and closer to the very best we have. But to put the worth of the project on whether or not it was perfect kind of as a self-defeating process rather than if I make this video and there's these issues or if I perform this piece and there's these issues, but someone still walks away feeling like it was enjoyable. Well, they got to assign the value and to them, the value was good. And I feel like we can sort of rest in that simplicity. Yeah. Um, I didn't author this. I, I can't remember exactly who did, but I read something once that said people connect with humanness, not perfection. So to put something out there, there's still an enormous amount of potential to connect from it. And really that's what this, I, I think, especially with music, that's a huge part of, of why, you know, why I wanted to be a musician at least. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about, this is what I asked you about like nine or 10 or 11 months ago. So you've had plenty of time to think about it is what skills, you've already mentioned one of them, this sort of getting feedback, uh, the way that you do that as a musician has served you very well in uh, the arts administration field and beyond. I'm curious if you have other examples of things that you did as a musician that ended up being incredibly valuable skills for you to have developed outside of you know performing music specifically. I think another thing, Ryan, is um, the art of teaching yourself um, I think, um, you know, like, uh, think about the private lessons that you have. Um, you're not really spending that time, like kind of practicing the, you know, doing something kind of over and over again so that you kind of can't make a mistake the next time you do it. Like that happens in the practice room. That happens when you're kind of by yourself, uh, alone focused on like yourself and your skills and and what you're doing um so it's that process of like knowing what you want and then hearing what's there and that process of getting from 
where you are to where you want to be, everything that happens in there, um, that totally translated. Um, and like just the idea of like beginning with a concept in mind, like in music, you might be thinking about a concept of sound. Um, but again, kind of going back to the partnerships that we were talking about earlier and setting those up in those collaborations, you're beginning again with that goal of, you know, we want these students to have access to the arts and build some creative confidence through this program. What other partners, you know, are interested in that? You're kind of beginning from that framework and like thinking through what do you have to put in place to get from where you are now to where you want to go. I would say that's 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 huge. Um, I think the the idea of practice. So I think practice is like such a beautiful concept, um, and I think it's become a little more beautiful now that. it's kind of not as much as my day-to-day as it used to be but this idea of like you're setting out to not do something perfectly you're just setting out to like get a little bit better at it every day and make a little bit of progress Um, because you know music and like you know learning clarinet um, being a professional musician it's like there's always more to learn Um, and I think that is really similar kind of outside of music world also. Um, I also think, um, kind of going back to practicing and like learning to teach yourself, um, the idea of being able to ask good questions is something that translated also, um, a good question for me is like something that really inspires possibilities Um, so an example of that might be like, you're working on a passage. It's really challenging. You just like, you can't nail it. And you might like put your instrument down and be like, why can't I get this? For me, that's like a kind of a fixed mindset kind of question. Whereas like a a better question, something that kind of like gets your brain engaged in like, um, imagining possibilities might be again, coming back to that idea of like where you want it to be. So you might ask yourself like, how might I um, make this more locked in? And when you frame something like that, your brain kind of goes into this mode of like trying to generate a bunch of solutions. Um, So when my practice started like transitioning from kind of a fixed mindset of like, why is this so bad? to how might I like be able to get to this point that I want to. Um, I think things got, you know, much easier for me. And I still employ that technique a lot, even like in my day to day now. And it's actually like um also really helpful when you're working with other people and um, you know, you might have some challenge at work and um uh, you know, your team, you've got your team around you and you're going to tackle this problem. And instead of like kind of dwelling on why this is so hard, you're thinking about how, how, you know, again, where you want to go and asking the question, like, how might we get there? What are some ideas? And really you're kind of coming from that generative place rather than that shut down kind of place. I totally agree. The, the way that I've come to talk about this is ex- very similar to what you just described where it's this is what you have like you have a blueprint of what you want and then you you know play something maybe you record it and you listen and then you say well what's the difference between what I just did and what I want and then you start to 
bring up a list of things that are different and now you just have the things to like work on. And what I find is that it's significantly more objective. You're, there's so much less emotion in that process of I'm good or I'm bad or I can do this or I can't. And it's just like, what's the difference and how would we bridge that gap? And like you said, you're working from the sort of logical place of problem solving rather than trying to overcome like your own self-despair of like what hole you've dug yourself into because you didn't start practicing early enough. And all of a sudden now, like you're never going to play your jury well and like you can't learn all this other music and you'll never get into grad school. It's just like, like, well, let's just start with this decision right now and just say like, well, what could I do right now that might move me a little closer to where I want to be? I totally agree. I think another co common thread between music making and this is something I've been learning a lot with like video production and stuff is this concept of story and how story like generates everything. Story is what we connect with. Like when we play music, the story we tell somebody might be able to connect with the technique of what we do. They might be able to say, wow, I appreciate that person doing that at that level. But the thing that generally speaking that moves us or is memorable is there's a, a story or we felt that they were telling us a story. And I'm really diving into this in video content. Like, how do you tell a story through video? And then the same thing with like a podcast, the same thing with, with an actual book that are telling stories. We recognize that when we hear anyone say, I went through this rough patch, they're telling us their story. And now we understand them a little bit better. I find that to be an incredibly common theme that that's where we start to like hold ourselves again around brands, right? Like that's what a rebrand is all about, right? Is like, what story are we telling people about what it is that we do? And that's something I didn't think about to the degree that I thought about it until quite recently. And I wish I would have thought about that when I was younger, not just like, what story am I telling as a professional, but like, or as a performer, but what story am I telling everybody about who I am based on the way that I'm acting right now? Because I don't think I would like that answer back when I was I was in school. I think I was telling a story that I don't really, I'm not really proud of. <laughs> well, you're reminding me of um, something else that I think has has actually translated um, also to admin world. And you know, when I talk about admin, talking a lot about working with people, um, it's like 99 percent of what I'm doing, you know, like if you talk to, um, like when you say I'm a musician, like people automatically know, okay, you, you play music. When you say like, I'm an admin, people are like, mm, what is, what is that? Like, it's a little more abstract and like what you're doing in admin, like from like just a technical everyday standpoint is you're either like talking or you're writing. Um, and one thing that has also, you know, been um that I'm very grateful for with my music background is like kind of this idea of like a sense of timing and um like if you think about like making a phrase or giving a phrase shape um you may not decide you're going to just start out like full-on forte you're gonna kind of build the dynamics like there's a time for for the phrase to peak and then release and I think um you know, with admin or with working with people or, you know, sometimes it's just not the right time to do something and that's okay. Like you don't have to be like going f like full force all the time. Um, sometimes things just come together and it, it makes sense and they have a natural cadence and, you know, it's, it's time to move on. Um, and I, I think like just knowing that 
like, you know, all of like, if you think about a composition again, or making, making a phrase that time you spend, like maybe in the, like, again, going back to dynamics, like, like in a piano kind of space, and then you like build it, it just makes it a lot more meaningful. So um, just kind of having acceptance of, you know, sometimes things are slower or quieter and then they build and then, um, you know, they might, you know, re relax a little bit. I, that, that happens kind of outside of music too. And like letting those moments be those moments. So the bigger moments like actually are the bigger moments. Yeah, I, I think that's that's an interesting perspective. I wouldn't have uh, thought about. Um, before we get back to that one question I wanted to talk about, which is just the idea of being able to bring the arts anywhere. Um, I want to talk to you about being a young female CEO of a of a of just a, a company, you know, of a business. And, um, you know, I know you well enough to know that, I mean, you might be different in a leadership role, but you don't, you don't seem to be a very like aggressive, like domineering, like I'm going to tell you how things are. So um, I'm just curious what leadership means to you, what it looks like to you, how you feel things are best run, how you have been able to generate uh either loyalty or the idea that people will hear you and listen and do that thing. And because I feel like it's a common narrative for with plenty of examples to follow about how like women in leadership may not be taken as seriously as men in leadership. And the only way a woman can be taken seriously is if she acts all aggressively, but then we call her that five letter word that like is whore. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, so how do you manage what this looks like uh, and being able to be true to who you, who you seem to be the person that I know you to be? Yeah. I think that um, something that I've learned uh, over the past few years is what makes you different makes you valuable and a good leader. Like if that's, you know, if you're working under someone um, and they're, you know, the leader quote unquote, um, they'll see that and they'll, they'll value that. Um, I have had, you know, my struggle with, um, you know, sometimes I'm in the room and um, I'm the youngest one. I'm the shortest one. I'm, the quietest one, um, been in a room where a lot of the leadership is, um, you know, six foot tall men who are very charismatic and can kind of walk in and make everybody laugh. And for a while I thought I needed to be like that. Um, that's not really who I am though. I'm, I'm actually like very much on the introverted side of things. Um, I'm, I don't speak super loudly. I just, uh, not quite six feet tall. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, I think, uh, just realizing that any, a successful team, um, is a team where, gosh, you've got different sets of expertise and personal experiences all around the same table and there's space for those people to bring those experiences. Um, and I've seen that with my own team, I've come to really value the, the people on my team who have the different opinion, who reframe things, who put it in a way where it's like, Oh, we hadn't considered that before. Um, and I think just seeing that, has really made me feel a little bit more comfortable just kind of being how I am. 
Um, and realizing that, you know, there have been instances where, uh, you know, where, um, you know, multiple people around a table, you're trying to solve an issue and everybody's kind of talking over each other. Um, and in that instance, it's really good to have the person in the room who who's listening and hearing what everybody's saying and is able to distill it and um, think about it thoughtfully and, um, you know, say what needs to be said and really sum up and kind of organize some of the chaos that can exist. Um, so I think it's just really important to remember, again, like what makes you different makes you valuable. Um, and just to know that the, the good leaders out there will see that. I've seen a lot of leadership that is the opposite of what you just described. I think what you said is very inspiring to me. And I think it requires a lot of trust. It requires a lot of sort of self-assurance, self-belief. It requires obviously a team of people who are on the same page as well. But you often see with leadership people who, when they have differing opinions, will shut down the conversation as if it's you're challenging their authority uh, and they, maybe they don't believe in them or they think that they're smarter or something like that. So it may not be very, very different from what you described, but where do you develop the sort of self-assuredness or the trust does it come from seeing their work or do you just outright trust these people? You know, I'm, like how do we develop that to, to have enough security in knowing that maybe they're not challenging us. Maybe this is like how the process works to find the best result. Yeah, I'm uh, not totally sure if this is um, what you're getting at, but so feel free to bring me back if, if you know, we want to talk about something different. But um, I think sometimes your worst boss can be your best teacher. And um, I've learned a lot and I think there can be a lot of opportunities to learn from situations that aren't ideal. Um, so I think that's one component. The Another component is if someone is bringing an idea to the table um, and they're being vulnerable by putting an idea out there that they don't know if it's going to get accepted or rejected. And you're like resisting what they're saying. My question to you would be like, why are you resisting it? And I think a lot of the times that can go back to um, like maybe something kind of personal that really doesn't have anything to do with the work at hand. Um so one thing that's become really important to me kind of over like my own experience and having, you know, numerous supervisors and teachers is uh, making sure that the these people, I mean, for me, like I'm talking about myself, is um, making sure that I'm taking care of my own mental and emotional health. Um, because I think when you're at the table, someone's, you know, brave enough to offer up an idea and you're resisting it, a lot of the times that can come back to something that maybe might be unresolved in your past. Um, so like the best leaders, teachers that I've had have been the ones who have really made space for me to be seen for who I am and what I'm bringing at that moment, no matter what it is. Um, and have really supported me kind of where I'm at. Um, I'm not really sure if that answers your question. Yes, but... of course it does. That was great. <laughs> but I, I totally agree. I mean, 
I only agree because I've have done a lot of that work, so I see the value in what it, it allows me to like see people better. You see yourself, like you see people the way you see yourself in a lot of ways, I think. So if you can see yourself with compassion, you can see other people with compassion. If you're incredibly hard on yourself, like you're most likely going to be really hard on other people. I totally agree. And I think leadership especially, this is like borderline mandatory because like what's on the line is like, there's a lot on the line for a leader who just thinks that they're the smartest person in the room. And I've seen it be destructive. So I appreciate that perspective because I think it's pretty spot on. It's not always easy, but I think you're, I think you're pretty spot on. So, um, okay. I want to come back to this very last part. So we've got like this full perspective-ish, I suppose we could obviously talk forever about this, but we've got a much fuller perspective of you went into performance and then circumstances in your life, uh, both of interest and sort of of necessity, depending on where you happened to ended up moving, brought you into the arts um, administration and then ultimately into music education or arts education and stuff. And Yeah, and Ryan, I also want to say before we get into this last part, like, you know, thinking about challenges, like over the past few years, like acknowledging that I didn't want to do music to make a living was a challenge for me mm. over the past past couple of years. Um, yeah, expand upon that. What do you mean? Um, it was pretty, it was a pretty long process actually. Um, kind of going back to, to high school. Um, I remember I was at Interlochen for the summer. I was on the phone with my teacher at the time um, from back home, just, just kind of checking in. And I don't remember exactly how this came up, but um, they said, you know, music requires so much sacrifice and it's really hard and you have to be in it 110%. And, you know, they weren't they weren't wrong, but I remember just thinking like, huh, I don't, I don't know if I'm like in it that hard right now. Um, there was, uh, a lot of moments actually in my undergrad and, um, even a little bit into grad school where I noticed like I was kind of making silly mistakes, like maybe messing up the time of a rehearsal, um, forgetting something like sometimes like these these things that can like in a musician's dreams, like can kind of be like a little bit nightmarish that were happening. And I, I'm, I'm not really that kind of, that, that just, that never didn't really happen to me. I am usually just like, I have things in my schedule. I don't miss appointments. Um, and I started reflecting on like, like why, why is this happening? Um, and now that I can look back at things and of course hindsight is 2020. I realized that those were probably signs along the way that I just wasn't going to be a good fit for me. It wasn't exactly what I wanted to do, um, you know, my whole life. So, um, you know, as I got into grad school and I again had this wonderful and supportive teacher, um, she really gave me the space to kind of explore some other things that I I was interested in. Well, that's kind of, yeah, I love that you shared that because this is kind of the direction I'm, why I'm heading in this direction is I think there's a difference between I love music and I want to be a performer. And I think because there are so few perceived 
career paths for people who love music that I think some people who don't, I would include myself in this, you know, like who don't see other options. And so I like convince myself, well, this must be the thing that I'm supposed to do with my life. And I'm not saying that I regret anything that happened in my career. I just recognize that my interests are different. Like my my reasons I got into music are different than I want to be a performer. I want to be, you know, uh, even like that I quote, love music or whatever. So what you've done with your life is to be true to that. And obviously opportunities in your life showed up for you to be able to pursue. And then you took advantage of them to the best of your ability by being proactive and like what we talked about. And now you are in this position uh, with the arts collab that you you can like bring the arts into spaces and spheres because you care deeply about the arts. And so you can be the expert and, and passionate about it and bring it to places that maybe it didn't exist before. And you've sort of like this kind of career path is like you're just like sort of trailblazing it in some ways. Um, so I'm kind of curious, like what is, if you've had time to reflect upon your time at uh, Arts Collab, like, what does it mean for you to have a position like this where you get to be this creative, to sp- to share the arts in, in ways and to work really, really hard to be able to try to serve, uh, you know, the greater Birmingham community? I'm just curious what it means for you. And um, yeah. Um, I had several experiences, I think, in in music, like once I started getting a little bit more serious about doing it full time where different influences in my life were saying like if you don't do it this way then you can't do it um like there's there's one way to do it um and if you don't do it this way then just don't um or people were saying like if you aren't hitting this benchmark by this point then it's just not going to work out for you um or I'd come in to a lesson and I might have an idea. Like I remember one lesson I was super interested in exploring like the idea of being like a full-time studio musician and like kind of doing uh, film music, like as, as like, you know, my main source of income. And my teacher at the time was kind of like, Oh, that's hard. Um, and it's just like, <laughs> or like, Oh, that's like a really hard life. And they may not. Sorry, have been. I'm going to interrupt you for a second. When I was in grad school, I it was my last semester. I had to take two classes, or my last quarter, I had to take two classes, or I wasn't going to graduate. And one of them let me in, and one of them was like, I was like trial weeks for Indianapolis, some other stuff. So I was like not going to be there very much. And one class let me in, and one class was like, no, you can't do it. So I got in. I, I met with like the like the people like the higher up people administration but like you know the dean or something or the associate dean i don't know and we we're trying to figure this out and i said oh my friend mark told me that uh broke counterpoint is open and she just looked at me and she goes that's a very hard class <laughs> i was like what are you saying about you know like what are you saying are you saying that i can't do this like what that's what it reminds me of yeah yeah i mean it, when when someone says that it's just kind of like Wait, what am I supposed to do with that? I, yeah. I, I just, I guess for me, I didn't know what to do with that information at the time. Um, 
and I think there were a few few other influences that were, you know, giving me this idea of like, like if you don't do it a certain way, then you just can't. Oh, things like um, like play, playing on certain equipment or um, you know, uh, this this approach to like this interpretation of this piece is is the best, and this other one is is inferior and i there you know that just there were moments where you start to question kind of your own like voice i think um in those moments uh, but go circling back to the arts collab um you know we work with students who who for you know one reason or another during school haven't had the chance to do much with the arts at school. And what we see a lot of the times is at the beginning, um, like say we're, you know, going to do visual art. Um, like a lot of the students might say, oh, I don't draw or like, I can't draw. And um, something that happens over these nine week periods when we check back in is we hear the students saying, like, I can be creative and I can be brave. And we've used the arts to kind of shift their mindset from like a more fixed mindset to a more growth mindset where they they realize that they 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 can do all of these things, that they can um, get out there and like make their voice heard. They can express themselves. And I just think that it's important to surround yourself with people who are telling you that you can do something. Then you know, others who might be maybe distracted by that, distracted from that, or distracted by kind of where they are personally um, to kind of bring someone down. But I think about, you know, my, you know, my personal heroes and my best teachers, and they're really the ones when I say, I have this idea, they're kind of like, yeah, how can I support you in that? Um, yeah. And, um, that was really important, I think, for me, because, you know, even if I ultimately decided that it wasn't what I wanted to do, like I was given the space to explore that and come to that on my own. And I was also given the trust that I would, you know, they were trusting me that I would be able to do that. So, um, you know, I think what we do now is I want, you know, every student to know that you know, whatever it is that they want, they can do it. Like that's an incredible mission. And, you know, we all deserve that moment. I feel like in our life where we realize like we tried something, we struggled, or like you said, maybe even decided we can't because of that or because of outside influences. Like we deserve the opportunity to recognize like, actually, yeah, we can you might need a little bit of help. You might need a little bit of guidance. You might need to try, you know, it might not be just, might just be handed to you, but realizing you can do it in one facet or aspect of your life feels like it should just transfer. Like what else did I not think I could do that I actually might be capable of doing? And it just like opens everything up. I think it's an incredible mission. Um, I guess right now would be a good time to plug the arts collab. If you're interested in kind of people who might be like, I want to check that out, where would be they be able to find information slash contact you uh, if they were desiring to do so? Um, yeah, you can reach out to me. I think the best place to do that is um, probably through LinkedIn. 
Um, just find uh, just find me by my first and last name. Um, you can read more about the Arts Collab. Our website is birminghamartsed.org. Uh, we're also on Facebook and Instagram. BHM Arts Ed is our handle for both of those. So yeah, check that out if you're interested in the work that their group is doing. I think, it, like I said, it just sounds amazing. And to be able to use the arts to teach some of those just fundamental ideas. You know, I feel like it can happen in sports. People, oh, I learned how to do this thing I didn't know how to do, or I learned how to ride a bike. Like it could exist anywhere, but you're just doing your part in like the thing that you do, which is the arts. And like we talked about, being able to be involved in the arts, but make an impact in that way is like not in a performing career. It's sort of in a teaching career, sort of like, reframing what it means to have a life in music, a life in the arts. I just think it's a beautiful thing. So I appreciate you sharing all of everything that you shared. And just thanks for being on this episode. It was a lot of fun to connect with you in this way. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. If anybody needs to get in touch with me, you can do so at thatsnotspit.com or reach out on Facebook or Instagram at thatsnotspit. If you enjoyed this episode, uh, please consider giving a rating and a review on iTunes. And don't forget to share it on social media so other people can find it as well. Thanks so much to Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And I would most of all like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>